Every day, our world gets a little more connected, but a little further apart. But then, there are moments that remind us to be more human. Thank you for calling Amica Insurance. Hey, uh, I was just in an accident. Don't worry, we'll get you taken care of. At Amica, we understand that looking out for each other isn't new or groundbreaking. It's human. Amica, empathy is our best policy. Welcome to the You Are Not So Smart Podcast, episode 192. The problem for some of those people is they're incompetent, and they, they don't have the expertise to realize that the strategy they've chosen has a lot of problems with it because they literally lack the expertise to be able to recognize those problems. If they had that expertise, um, at the very least, they'd be asking for advice from other people. So, uh, so incompetent people are in a, um, a special situation where it's not that they don't recognize um, their um, lack of skill. And it's not that they're denying their lack of skill. It's, they're not in a position to, to make the call correctly. Uh, they're not in a position to realize just how badly they're doing. That is Dr. David Dunning explaining the Dunning-Kruger effect from an episode going all the way back to six years ago. That's right, six years ago. So I'm working on a very big episode right now about persuasion. And as some of you know, this is a one-person operation, and I needed some time to finish that episode. So in this episode, we return to a show from six years ago that really established the sort of guests I wanted to feature, because not only is this an episode about the Dunning-Kruger effect, the guest is Dr. David Dunning himself, who, along with Justin Kruger, conducted the study that coined the term way back in 1999. What is the Dunning-Kruger effect? Well, in a nutshell, it's the fact that all human beings are unaware that we lack the skill to tell how unskilled and unaware we are. The evidence suggests that we all have this complicated relationship with our own ignorance, and it's dishonest, it's complicated, but it keeps us sane and happy and willing to get out of bed in the morning, and part of that relationship is this blind spot we each possess that obscures both our competence and incompetence. And we call it the Dunning-Kruger effect. And as you will hear from Dr. Dunning, we are generally very bad at self-assessment. That's what it comes down to. So if you've ever been confronted with the fact that you were in over your head, or you had no idea what you were doing, or you thought you were more skilled at something than you actually were, then you may have experienced this effect. It is very easy to be both unskilled and unaware of how unskilled you are. And in this episode, we're going to explore why that is. So here it is, a classic from the archives, an interview with Dr. David Dunning about both the history of the Dunning-Kruger effect and his ongoing research into the phenomenon. Here we go.
Okay, David, it feels like if there is anything that I know about in this world, it's my own self, like who I am, uh, what I am and what I am not capable of, how I compare to others and so on. What does your research tell us about the image that we have of ourselves and of our skills and our talents? Well, uh, what our research suggests is that, uh, of course, the Greeks uh, said that knowing thyself was one of the most important tasks that you could ever do in life. But our work suggests that this is one of the most intrinsically difficult tasks to do. Um, That is, left to your own devices without the help of other people, uh, we're just not in a position really to know ourselves. Um, We live in a world that gives us misinformation or doesn't give us crucial information. Uh, Knowing thyself is an intrinsically difficult task. I mean, the world doesn't give us the information we need to really know what we're good at and what we're bad at. Um, Often it gives us misleading information. And often we're guilty of misleading ourselves. So at the end of the day, if you compare uh, what people say about themselves and, and what they truly believe about themselves to the reality of themselves, and that's what I do as a psychologist, I, can, I measure the reality of people, uh, what you find is some relationship, but the relationship between what people think about themselves and the reality of themselves is relatively meager to often non-existent. And this is the, like one of the most difficult things to to fully accept and, 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 uh, realize when it comes to, uh, when you start to really explore psychology and it could, because not only is it that it seems that we're bad at assessing ourselves, we don't feel that we feel the opposite of that. Is that something that you, you see as well in your research? Oh, that's right. Yeah. We often do have a feeling that we really do know ourselves and we know what we're capable of. And um, the mistake that we make is that uh, we often think we're capable of lots of things uh, that we actually aren't capable of. That is, we're overconfident, uh, we're too certain about our abilities, uh, uh, too confident in our expertise, uh, a little too, um, uh, having a little bit too much hubris in our moral character. And, but the key here is that people really believe it. They really believe rather positive images of themselves. Though when you actually test out what people can actually do or what they really do, uh, the picture isn't that positive. Yeah, I, I remember the first time in my life that I really recognized that this was, this was true was um, in college, I staged a, um, a fighting game tournament where I, uh, I, had, um, I set up all these, uh, these video game systems and I invited people from around the country to the uh, university to play a uh, particular uh, fighting game. And we had a sort of a group of friends, like it was like eight to 10 people in our hometown who uh, played this game and we thought that we were amazing at it. We thought that we were the best uh, in the world. And I didn't, I had no problem inviting the champions from the country to come play against us. And every single one of us lost uh, both of our matches immediately. <laughs> like we didn't even, we didn't even place. We didn't even mm-hmm. come close. We were absolutely destroyed. Um, and I remember all of us sort of shaking our heads and rubbing our, our temples and thinking like, how could we not just be, uh, not okay, but act, actually suck? <laughs> like, how is that possible? Um, and I bet that sort of, uh, that happens a lot amongst, um, people who feel or like sort of at the amateur level feel that they have, um, achieved something and that there's not much distance between that amateur and, and level and master level is is this something that you've uh, seen in your research as well? Well, yeah. Uh, not only have we seen it, but uh, a lot of people have seen it. That is that um, 
you know, if, if people are at the amateur level, uh, they really haven't seen the master level. So they've seen maybe hints of it, and maybe they've seen that uh, occasional things where another person's a little bit better than they are, but that's all they've ever seen. Um, and so when they, and, and this often uh, explains the trauma of going to college, when they go from <laughs> high school and being the best of their swimming team to college and suddenly being in the, you know, uh, down in the bottom 20% of the people who are trying out, um, uh, they uh, begin to realize it's just what a small pond they were a fish in. That is that a, a lot of the problem we have in assessing ourselves is we don't get to see the entire range of competence out there, all the way from the worst, uh, all the way to the best. And uh, not knowing what the best looks like, we can presume uh, that we're very close to that top. Um, and the reason we think we're close to the top is we really haven't seen that top. Right. Uh, and... Uh, uh, it is the case. I, I've been a college professor for a few decades now, and there is a time in about the first half semester when students begin to realize all these other students are are good, and there are some students here that, that uh, who seem to be supernaturally good, and they've just never seen that, mm-hmm. um, and that's part of the reason why they thought they were. Uh, uh, they thought they were so skilled beforehand. Uh, they're being exposed to an entirely different world. I, I think I think of it like you know u- uncles that I have that think that they can win Jeopardy. You know, but if, if you put, oh, yeah. if you if you actually put them in front of Alex Trebek, they wouldn't. They would go negative immediately. Um, <laughs> no, I think that. No, I think that's right. I mean, uh, 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 one of the things we get to do when we're watching Jeopardy is we get to choose which questions we answer. We're not watching how many questions we just sort of skip. And the problem is all those questions we skip are going to make us losers when we actually go on uh, the program. And put on top of that the fact that uh, you're nervous, the cameras are on you, Alex Trebek probably is much more imposing in person than, <laughs> uh, uh, than through the TV set. Um, uh, you know, People just haven't had the experience. That's going to uh, give them a more accurate clue as to uh, where their skill actually lies. When I uh, first uh, was reading your your research and your work, I, I the, the very first example that came to my mind was um, uh, uh, reality television shows that are about um, people who are um, trying to win at some sort of talent competition or trying mm-hmm. to win at singing. And um, I know that those shows purposefully grab a couple people who aren't very good and put them out there for ridicule. But um, you'd think at this point that those people, people would know that's that's happening and they wouldn't go along with it is 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 that the dunning-kruger effect whenever um you have people who are not very good at singing who actually go all the way to the end and they think that they're going to win that competition well it's a good example of the dunning-kruger effect that is uh in in fact uh, in the early days um the name Dunning-Kruger effect was uh, competing with uh, the name American Idol uh, effect Ah. because American Idol uh, had all these examples. Of course, they're chosen for television, but we had all these examples of people who truthfully thought they were good uh, when, in fact, um, they were nowhere near any sense of the term good in terms of their their singing. And uh, and in looking at what's going on for those individuals, it looks like they are unfortunately in the Dunning-Kruger world or in the American Idol version of, uh, of the Dunning-Kruger world. Um, because um, uh, one of the issues that makes uh, self-evaluation very hard, knowing if you're good or you're bad, is that um, 
often the information you're using to produce uh, your answer, to produce your performance, let's say if you're an American Idol, is exactly the same information or evidence you're using to judge yourself. And, of course, everybody is trying to do the best that they can. So, pe- uh, so people are singing. They're singing their best. Uh, they're probably hearing something that's pretty good. Uh, that is, what we hear internally is different from what other people are hearing. And um, uh, because of that, they think they're doing at least okay when, uh, uh, in the old days, the Simon Cowell might be, you know, wincing in the corner and diving under the desk, or, um, <laughs> or, or the judges are patiently waiting because they know that the the camera is going to take their reaction shot at the end, and it's and the reaction shot is not going to be the one the contestant wanted to see. Um, uh, but it's basically that people who are, um, singing, what they're hearing is different from what the world is hearing and what they're hearing makes them believe they're doing much better than uh, they're actually doing. That's the Dunning-Kruger world. Mm -hmm. And I would imagine that like that in their hometown, they may be the best singer or they're in their group of friends. They're the best at what they do. And, um, and you know, there's all the, all this American stuff goes into it. We're like, you know, believe in your dreams. Don't listen to people until you don't have it. You know, it's a, it can be, it can really be this tough to break out of psychological cocoon that that um, I'm always afraid that I'm inside of one of those cocoons. Well, but yeah, that's absolutely true. But here's the other problem um, with that, which is that other people conspire uh, with us to keep us in those cocoons. That is, uh, one of the things I tell my students is, uh, do remember that what people say to your face is not what they're saying about you behind your back. Mm. Um, And uh, we live in a world that's polite. And we live in a world in which people just want to make it through the day uh, without too much disharmony and too much rancor and too much argument. So, uh, you may not have the best um, voice in the world. There may be other people who are painfully aware, and I do mean painfully aware, that uh, you don't have the best voice in the world. They may actually be enablers in the belief that you can actually sing good enough to go on uh, an audition to the TV show. <laughs> Mediocrity enablers. I want I want you to put that into a, a research paper. Uh, that's a great term. <laughs> Well, actually, it is, actually it is a great term. Uh, but the key about that is, if you go through the day, just mark how many times during the day you're being a mediocrity enabler. Uh, and th- this is just a conspiracy we, we we do for each other, and that's terrific for you know conversations. That's terrific for um, uh, everyday life. But it can lead a person uh, who actually believes <laughs> it into um, situations with uh, bigger outcomes. Yeah. And now we take a break from our show for a word from our sponsors. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp, and I'm very proud to have BetterHelp as a sponsor. I was using BetterHelp before they became a sponsor, and I was very excited to learn that they wanted to sponsor this program. I have recommended BetterHelp to people I know people right now who I've recently onboarded. I had a friend who had a really difficult medical event and was experiencing a completely new range of anxieties and feelings and concerns. And I recommended therapy. I'd never gone to therapy before. And this helped. Now, a lot of us spend our lives wishing we had more time. And the question is, Time for what? If our time was 
unlimited, how would you use it? And the best way to squeeze that special thing into your schedule is to know what is that special thing? What is important to you? What is that thing that deserves to take that slot, that precious time? How do you make that a priority? Therapy can help you find what matters to you so you can do more of it. And if you're thinking of starting therapy, I really recommend giving BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire and you will get matched with a licensed therapist and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. You can do that several times and really lock in with a therapist that is able to generate with you that dynamic that's so important. I believe you should be in therapy. I believe everyone should be in therapy for a period of time at least in their lives to sort this out. What's important to you? How do you make it work? And you can learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash Y-A-N-S-S today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp.com slash Y-A-N-S-S. So you want to make better decisions and you have a business. You have a business and you want to make better decisions in that business. You need some sort of key performance indicators, a system for measuring what you're up to, what you're doing. Measurable values that demonstrate how effectively your company is achieving your key business objectives. That's a KPI. And I have a recommendation for you. It's called NetSuite. You should be using NetSuite. Here's, here's why. So your business gets to a certain size and the cracks start to emerge. Every business that's doing well, even if it's just starting to kind of do well, it'll start to form some fissures here and there. Things you used to do in a day will start taking a week and you'll have all sorts of manual processes that just there's too many. You can't get to everything and you don't have one source of truth to make sense of it all, to make those better decisions. If that's you, you should know about three numbers. These are three numbers you should know. 37,000, 25, and 1. 37,000, that's the number of businesses which have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. That's a big number, 37,000. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, streaming accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, and more. 25. NetSuite turns 25 this year. 25? 25 years? 25 years of helping businesses do more with less, close their books in days, not weeks, and drive down costs. And one, because your business is one of a kind. You don't want some sort of operation or app that's just made for whoever comes along. No, you get a customized solution for creating those KPIs that you need. One efficient system with one source of truth made for one business, your business. Manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. Everything you need to grow all in one place. When you have everything you need in one place, all these biases, all these fallacies that I talk about on this program, 
it's an incredible way to apply everything you learn about making better decisions by having one source from which to pull your evidence, your information. Right now, you can download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance for nothing, absolutely free. You just go to netsuite.com slash not so smart. You get it for free. That's netsuite.com slash not so smart to get your own KPI checklist. One more time, netsuite.com slash not so smart. And now we return to our program. This is the You Are Not So Smart podcast, and we are interviewing David Dunning, one of the scientists who coined the term the Dunning-Kruger effect. Now back into the interview. Tell us a little bit about this, um, the MacArthur-Wheeler incident. I think that's one of the coolest stories about how uh, a psychological phenomenon finally got quantified. How, tell us how, uh, a little bit about the incident and how that led to your research. Yeah, in the early days, I, I was thinking a lot about um, the question of do incompetent people know they're incompetent because um, uh, if you're in a college professor's office, you often have people, and they're not necessarily students, come into your office with wild-eyed ideas. <laughs> and you just look at them and you you think in the back of your head, they must know what they're saying is doesn't make sense. Or if, if it's not in your office, you, you go to a faculty meeting and you, you hear it there. Um, uh, and uh, but in the early but one of the stories that I encountered uh, early on was the story of this would-be bank robber in Pittsburgh, um, Pennsylvania, who um, robbed a couple of banks in broad daylight with no visible um, disguise, and the police caught him within hours. I mean, it was just a question of showing his uh, face from surveillance tapes um, in the evening news, and before midnight, he was caught. And he was incredulous uh, because uh, as the police showed him the surveillance tapes, um, he started to mutter, uh, but I wore the juice. I wore the juice. That is, he thought that put, smearing your face with lemon juice would render it invisible or fuzzy to video cameras. Um, uh, you know, a wild theory to begin with. Yeah. Uh, but he, he really, really believed – but he really believed it to the tune of actually um, – robbing a couple of banks without any sort of precaution against being caught uh, based on this theory. Now, to his credit, he actually tested the theory. Uh, he actually did smear his face with lemon juice uh, a few days before and then took a Polaroid selfie uh, of himself. And all he saw was wall. What he didn't realize that he, is that he had misshaped the camera. Uh, so there, there is a nuance uh, to uh, what he did wrong. But um, I, I remember reading this and kind of going, if a person can believe this, um, and you, you basically decide, aha, I found the magic key to a life of crime that will succeed, uh, imagine uh, how many more times <laughs> in everybody's day some less flamboyant version of this is happening. Right. So, so that's what we decided to test out. Had, had he had some sort of incident or experience beforehand that made him, I mean, why was it lemon juice and not, you know, tomato juice or uh, a, a bag? Or like, where did he come up with this idea on his, on his own? How did he, how did that even enter his mind? 
You know, it's an interesting question. I have no idea. And uh, uh, I, I, now that you asked the question, I'd love to find out. <laughs> you know, why of all things lemon juice? It's so uh, I, I assume he was looking for it. <laughs> he, was looking for some, he was looking for an edge, as we all are. <laughs> And uh, he discovered the. Uh, I assume he discovered he he thought this was his edge, mm-hmm. and um, so where it came from, I don't know. That he was looking for something that would uh, suggest he could succeed a bank robbery. There's no doubt, um, uh, but uh, I don't know where the story came from because um, you, in doing this work, you get exposed to a lot of weird stories, mm-hmm. and. Um, and for some of them, you you have no idea where they could come from. You know, they 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 just sound weird, um, uh, but people act on them. So a lot, uh, I love it. I think that's the one of the weirdest things I've ever heard, and it led to this great insight into the human condition. And um, it's also what's great about the Dunning Kruger effect is that you know a lot of um, intellectuals and writers throughout history have sort of. Um, they've they've noticed it out in the world to some degree but then science finally came along and quantified it and i love when that happens it's one of my favorite things in the world um and a lot has been written about the dunning kruger effect here in the last uh especially the last 10 years what what so we can get so just so we can have it exactly right what is the true definition of the term okay well i'll give you the short version and then i'll expand upon it a little bit the okay. short version is that uh, incompetent people are not in a position to know they're incompetent uh, in many areas of life. Um, now, uh, there are actually, once you have that in place, there are a lot of other things that fall from that or, or follow from that. So incompetent people are, are uh, less, of a, uh, less good judges about other people and their skill. Uh, incompetent people can recognize they're incompetent once you change them into being competent, um, and it's, uh, incompetent people are going to, it, it's going to be more difficult for them to learn just how um, low their skill level is. And this isn't about denial. This isn't about self-deception. They're just not in a position to know. And the reason they're not in a position to know is um, from something that we refer to as the double curse uh, or the double burden, which is that if you have gaps in your expertise, or if you have corruptions in your expertise, you're getting some facts and figures and how they connect wrong, uh, that's going to lead to two different problems for you. The first problem is that you're going to make mistakes, obviously. I mean, if, if you lack expertise, you make mistakes. But um, in a lot of areas in life, um, the, um, uh, you, rely on those ex- you rely on that exact same expertise to judge whether or not you've made a mistake. Have you come to a right answer or have you come to a wrong answer? And so to the extent that you have gaps in your expertise or corruptions in your knowledge, you're, you're getting things wrong, uh, you're going to make wrong judgments about how good or how bad your decision, decisions are. And because everybody basically does what they think is the most reasonable thing to do, Pretty much everybody's going to be left in a position where they think they're doing okay. They've chosen the best out of all the possible options that are out there. Their strategy is the one that makes the most sense. The problem for some of those people is they're incompetent. And they, they don't have the expertise to realize that the strategy they've chosen has a lot of problems with it. Because they literally lack the expertise to be able to recognize those problems. If they had that expertise... Um, at the very least, they'd be asking for advice from other people. So, uh, so incompetent people are in a 
um, a special situation where it's not that they don't recognize um, their um, lack of skill. And it's not that they're denying their lack of skill. It's they're not in a position to, to make the call correctly. Uh, they're not in a position to realize just how badly they're doing. It, it, you just don't, you just don't know the things you don't know. It's like, um, yeah, exactly. It's like, uh, I think about how really, really, really smart people from our, uh, <clears throat> from the history of science will, will oftentimes come to conclusions simply because there's a giant amount of stuff that they don't know about what they're studying, whether it's like, uh, like canals on Mars and water on Mars and stuff like that. Like they, they're doing a, a they're doing their best. They're doing hard science and they're checking everything. Not like, unlike, uh, the guy with the lemon juice, they're, uh, they're, they're properly going about trying to study the the world, but there, there's so much that they're unaware of, um, to the degree that they're not aware of the even lack of knowing it. And, and it can just lead to mm. really strange, uh, hypotheses about what, how the world works. No, I think that's right. Um, uh, but you know, absent, uh, knowing the true knowledge, often what you're left with can at least, uh, uh, leave you with enough that you can come up with something that seems reasonable, mm -hmm. uh, for example. So remember that medicine used to be based on, uh, applying leeches to people to drain them of blood. There was probably, uh, uh, some sort of phenomena, some sort of folklore out there that made that, uh, plausible. Uh, even though today we would find that to be incredibly implausible. And um, uh, so uh, one way to think about uh, the problem of the incompetent uh, or people who are choosing incorrectly is we all have a lot of knowledge. or we, Let's say we all have a lot of facts, a lot of figures, uh, a lot of metaphors in our head, um, a lot of heuristics we can use uh, in thinking, rules of thumb, and so forth. And from that, we can cobble together what seems to be a reasonable um, answer to whatever problem we have in front of us. And the issue is, is that might be the most reasonable answer we can come up with, but that doesn't prevent that reasonable answer from being wrong. Mm -hmm. and, the, and the reason we don't see it as wrong is because there's all this other knowledge, if you will, all this, all this other information that we simply are not aware of. So uh, one of the ways um, <clears throat> I describe what's going on, uh, that is there's a borderline between what we know and what we don't know. And I think everybody would agree with that. Mm -hmm. uh, but there are two other uh, assertions I would make that uh, might be contentious, um, but not if you think about it for a little while. The first is that border happens real quick, and it happens well within the geography of our everyday life. So that often uh, we're acting out of knowledge, but often we're acting out of ignorance and just don't know it. We've crossed that borderline between uh, what we know and what we don't know. Mm -hmm. And uh, we just, from our lab, we have lots of examples of that where people, you know, go off and they make a decision, they're confident, but they're acting on a totally wrong belief, uh, a lemon juice belief, if you will. Um, I'm going uh, to use that for the rest of my life. Uh, well, yeah, actually, it's a nice <laughs> phrase, actually, because it does encapsulate it. Uh, but the uh, but here's the thing that I think it potentially is the most contentious, but the thing that our research suggests is the most true, uh, which is of all the irony of the things we don't know, um, the one thing we definitely don't know is where that borderline is between our knowledge and our ignorance. So uh, there might be a true right line between what we know and what we don't know, but you and I don't know where it is. Right. 
And so we're stepping over it all the time rather confidently and, and stepping back from it. And we don't know when we're doing that. And that is that starts to create um, a number of problems, first in judging our own expertise in anything, but also uh, judging the quality of our decisions in everyday life. It's, it's really one of my favorite things when you read about the history of, um, of science is to, is when you come across people who were considered the smartest people of their day, or they were considered mm. absolute experts on something like, uh, someone who is considered an, ex- an expert naturalist or what, you know, someone who would be considered a biologist today, but, but at the time they were just someone who was an expert on life forms and they would just be absolutely completely wrong in a way that is, um, you know, the average third grader today would, would recognize, um, whether it's like spontaneous generation or things like that. And um, I love, what I love most about that is that that person was considered to be like, uh, they had achieved the highest level of expertise. That's right. For that time period. Yet they, the vastness of their ignorance was, um, is, is incredible. And they could never have known that. And, 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 you know, of course the first thing you think is how applicable is that to our experts today? Do you think that we're, we're getting better at uh, accounting <clears throat> accounting for the ignorance that's probably uh, part of whatever it is that we're studying. Well, uh, 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 the first blush answer I have to give is I don't know uh, <laughs> because because one of the things I do worry is you're right. If you go you know back 300 years and take a look at all the theories that were well received scientific theories 300 years ago, and you roll your eyes at them um, because we're in a privileged position uh, being here in the 21st century. Uh, you, it begins to dawn on you probably 300 years from now, uh, you know, someone will be, you know, looking at scientific principles or theories, something like the, 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 the Dunning-Kruger effect and, uh, and rolling their eyes about how wrong uh, those researchers got it uh, back then. So that's a, that's a, so the idea that our most cherished beliefs, even scientific ones, might be overthrown is, is um, uh, just something I accept, you know, that could happen and, uh, it's happened in the past. It's going to happen in the future. But, uh, one of the things I will say that puts us in a better position now is, um, uh, the habits of science, if you will. Um, that is, uh, y- you've, uh, mentioned that, um, this problem of incompetence or ignorance uh, has been mentioned for a long, long time. And it has all you, you all the way back to, Socrates and Plato. Um, but uh, where you see an outburst of talking about limits of knowledge and discovering limits of knowledge uh, is in the Enlightenment and uh, out of the habits of people out of the Enlightenment. And one of the habits of science, uh, doing scientific reasoning. Uh, and so we, if we're in a better position to know when we're wrong and in a, in a better position to discard, what turns out to be childish theories as opposed to more mature and more valid theories. Uh, it, I think it's because of the ways of science, and in particular, one habit that um, is inbred uh, or, or baked into the enterprise, and, and that's the uh, habit of skepticism or the habit of disconfirmation. Uh, that is, uh, uh, what I tell students is scientists don't go out and um, try to create evidence for their favorite theories. Some will think that that's what they're doing, but that's not really what the enterprise is all about. Uh, the enterprise is really an enterprise about disconfirmation, where you might have a pet theory like the Dunning-Kruger effect or whatever I thought last week, which turned out to be wrong, and you test it in the laboratory or you test it uh, via data, 
And um, I can't tell you how many dozens or hundreds of my pet ideas have gone to the laboratory and died. Hmm. Uh, <clears throat> and um, that's valuable knowledge, you know, to, uh, to realize which of your ideas are wrong or ideas are childish or uh, ideas are naive. And if an idea can survive uh, an experiment, it probably is a correct and vibrant theory um, to behold or, or to have. And so I think if we are in an advantage situation uh, now, it's because uh, uh, we've learned, especially in the scientific world, we've learned that the the name of the game is disconfirmation. It's not confirmation. Yeah, it feels like that was the that is going to is one of the biggest turning points in all of uh, you know the pursuit of knowledge is that seeking disconfirmation first. That's that's what gets you results. That's what gets you to the moon, and uh, um, and it's so bizarre that the Dunning Kruger effect is kind of our default setting. We have to unlearn to do that, you know. Um, that's right. That's right. I, I'm looking at your um one of your papers here, uh, and I, I read this earlier and I loved it because um it it this it, it sort of illustrates that um there's a lot of nuance here. There's a lot more meat on the bone, and that is uh one of your uh the studies that you did. It was with um, um, uh, probably Joyce earlier. Oh yes, mm-hmm. uh, you had told he told a, two groups of people two different things, but you gave them the same test. One test, uh, you told them that the one group that the test was going to be of uh, computer uh, literacy skills, and he told the other group it was going to be uh, just you know logic and reasoning. And then, but both these two groups took the same test, but they had different estimates of how well they had performed on it. Could you sort of elaborate on that? Oh yeah, uh, that uh, uh, that was just a uh, key idea that that uh, uh, Joyce had, which is that um, uh, a lot of what we think about our performances, like uh, you know, have I said anything articulate today in, in your podcast, or um, you know, how well will I do in my uh, course lecture tomorrow, uh, isn't actually based on the experience of the of the podcast or the course lecture. It's it's actually inferred. It's something that I. Um, reason out from abstract ideas I already have about myself. So, uh, so uh, performance estimates like how well did I do today are actually, uh, in psychological jargon, top down. That is, we take preconceived notions we have about ourselves, like um, am I a good lecturer, and then infer whether or not our lecture was good or not based on this preconceived notion of whether we think we're a good lecturer or, or a bad lecturer, a good public speaker or a bad public speaker. And so we uh, tested this idea out by um, giving students a pop quiz on uh, verbal reasoning. Uh, But we gave the test uh, two different labels uh, that we knew students would have a a differing reaction to. Uh, One label was uh, that this was a test of abstract reasoning. And the one thing we knew about our students is they say they have abstract reasoning. That that's a that's a skill they have up the wazoo. Um, in fact, I would I, I would agree with that. In fact, sometimes their thinking is a little bit too abstract, but that's another story. And the other group was told that um, this was a test of the type of reasoning used in computer programming. Uh, and we knew from the students who wander into our experiments that they would deny until the day of their death that they have that skill. So they go, they take the test, it's the same test, same questions, same answers, um, same font, same, all created on the same Xerox machine. So for all intents and purposes, it's the same experience that's being presented. But the students who thought it was an abstract reasoning test um, 
uh, thought they did much better on it than uh, they got more questions right. They got eight out of ten as opposed to let's say six out of ten um, relative to those who thought it was about computer programming. Uh, and in fact, um, this difference between whether uh, they thought they were good at abstract reasoning versus bad at computer programming was just a strong indicator of how well people thought they had done, as was their actual performance. Uh, so it wasn't that people were divining uh, how well they had done from the actual experience in any way that um, was tightly tied to accuracy. They were inferring how well they had done from what they already thought about themselves. Wow. And l let me just mention two follow-ups to that work. Okay. Uh, the one follow-up, uh, which uh, uh, is now turning out to be important uh, that we did it, was we brought uh, students into our laboratory and gave them a pop quiz on science. And one of the things we monitored was, well, uh, what was the gender of the person walking in? Were they, uh, were they male or were they female? Because one of the things we know is starting the late teens, uh, teen, uh, uh, teenage boys and teenage girls start to differ in how scientifically talented they think they are. And so we knew that, and we, t we confirmed that uh, uh, male students walking into our laboratory thought they had more scientific talent than the female students thought they did. They're all taking the same test. By the way, they all do exactly the, they, they all do uh, equally well, men and women, uh, in, uh, on this test. But uh, when you ask them afterward how well they think they've done, uh, the men think they've done much better than the women think they've done. Um, that is that uh, you can have this split in preconceived notion about yourself um, that begins to play out in terms of uh, the impressions people are um, uh, are creating about uh, whether they're good at scientific tasks or bad at scientific tasks. And uh, in a uh, basically, in modern times, we know that men are overrepresented in engineering and science. Uh, this could be one of the mechanisms that's producing it. Not differences in actual talent, but differences in perceived talent, uh, which cause people to um, evaluate themselves differently on a day-to-day -day basis. And, I'll, and one last follow-up, um, uh, because <clears throat> this is also uh, this this is where the work. Uh, uh, begins to impress me. Not that I've done it, but the results coming in begin to be, give pause. Which is that um, you can ask the question, uh, why are these preconceived notions of self having an impact on how well people think they're doing? Uh, wouldn't it be swamped by the, just the actual experience of the test? That is, are you having a conflict between which answer you should choose? Is it taking you a long time to come to an answer? Do the terms look familiar? Do they look alien? You would think this bottom-up experience. Right, right. The look and feel of the test would just swamp the individual difference. Um, uh, with Clayton Critcher, we did a follow-up to the original work, and we discovered that a lot of people's actual bottom-up experience is formed by their top-down preconceptions. So that if you're skilled, you think you're answering the questions more quickly, you think the terms look more familiar, you experience less conflict uh, between the various answers that you can give, even though we can find no evidence of this in reality. But the, the look and feel of the test literally changes based, uh, based on what you think about your ability walking into the room. Wow. See, that that's... So the inference on the back end is changing the way you perceive the reality of what you just experienced. And I also, uh, and correct me if I'm wrong, 
you can um, prime people going into the test by saying women typically, this is a test of scientific knowledge and women typically don't do very well on those tests. And then that can actually affect the process of taking the test going in, or you can change it to whatever, like uh, cultural or ethnicity uh, uh, variables that you can mess with by priming people going in can also affect how they uh, perform on the test as well. Is that true? Uh, that's right. Uh, so uh, when we were uh, in our work, what we find is we find um, what we're doing doesn't affect actual performance, but it does affect what people perceive of their performance. Right. But there is a, a, a lot of work uh, on the topic of stereotype vulnerability or stereotype threat in uh, in social psychology, showing that ultimately you get differences in actual performance. Okay. So, uh, yeah. Go ahead. I'm sorry. Well, so okay, with, with Dunning Kruger and with this um, this inference thing that comes from the um, I think, as you call it, the chronic, a chronic self of you of yourself. Oh yeah, uh, all of that. Yeah, um, exactly. So, um, so with this inference thing, where you uh, actually experience less um, conflict and you feel like you're doing gr- a great job while you're taking the test or not, depending on what you're uh, uh, viewing, how you view yourself and how you view the material. How does it? Um, if you, if you, as a, as an expert, as a scientist could choose between like a head of state, like a president or, or maybe like a military commander or something or someone who in a position of great power and authority, which, which would you prefer to have someone who is, who is confident in a way that maybe they, uh, don't deserve or someone who is very, very accurate at assessing how well they're doing at a certain task and how good their decisions were on the back end. Oh, the only answer I can give is I want them both, but at different times. Okay. Uh, that is, <clears throat> um, uh, there are uh, there are some times when confidence is very, very important. That is, for example, if you're a general and you're about to lead your troops into battle, uh, you definitely want to be confident because you want your troops to execute their tasks and not have any doubts and not to delay because that's going to save lives. But you don't. So you want a you want a confident uh, general at that moment. But before that moment, you want a general who's who's incredibly cautious. You know, who wants as many troops as possible, as much ordnance as possible, uh, who has a plan B and plan C if plan A doesn't work out. Uh, that is, you want someone who's uh, who's filled with doubts and using those doubts to try to um, uh, figure out all the contingencies that are out there that can happen on the day that uh, the battle begins. So you you want that overly cautious general in preparation, but the day of battle, when it's time to execute, you want a confident general. Mm-hmm. So um, so uh, one way to think about confidence is that it, it has its bad sides and it has its good sides. So it ultimately turns out to be something that you need to manage. You need to know when you should have it and when you should not have it. And uh, there is no blanket answer um, that and, and how you manage confidence is not about should I always be confident or should I always be cautious. Mm-hmm. You really have to turn on the caution and turn it off and turn on the confidence in those moments when it's going to be the most helpful for you or whoever you're leading or whoever you're responsible for. Wow. And so and that that's another meta skill that you have to uh, <laughs> to practice and hone. That's right. Yeah, yes. Uh, there, unfortunately, in life, there are a lot of meta skills. There, there are many, many of them. So it's not a surprise that some of them we were not very good at. Right. So if you uh, in a, like a, in an institution that wants to be better at making decisions and wants to be better at having people who are actually good at what they do and don't just think they're good at what they do, are there some suggestions from psychology about how to build better institutions? 
Uh, there, uh, there are some helpful um, uh, points that psychology suggests in order to avoid um, overconfidence that leads you over, over the cliff, if you will. The first is that although it's unpleasant, uh, you do want to have uh, naysaying voices involved in any sort of decision that you make. That is, you want someone to play a devil's advocate. Um, uh, to basically to poke holes in what the the group or the institution might be thinking about uh, what it wants to do. Uh, the reason for that is having a devil's advocate can spot uh, it help uh, the organization spot when it's being overconfident, or sometimes just improve the decision that uh, the institution is going to do. So you want that. Uh, the the second thing you want to do is you want to build in. Um, buffers for wrong decisions, and more importantly, wrong decisions that you can't anticipate. You know that some of your decisions are going to be wrong. You know that there are going to be complications. You just don't know when they're going to happen. So in the software world, uh, software development, uh, it's quite common to go to uh, software developers and ask, how long will it take you to um, uh, design and uh, execute this uh, new software that we're, we're building. And the, uh, uh, the developer will give you an estimate, and you go, thank you very much, and then you immediately inflate it by 30%. Because you know that the uh, software developer is going to be overconfident, hasn't anticipated everything. So you just know that from uh, past experience, you inflated 30%, and you inflated up to 100% if it's a new operating system, for example. And um, architects know this. So they'll, um, when they're building a building, they'll calculate how much concrete uh, they need in order to make sure the building will be stable. And then they just multiply that, that number by as much as eight right. uh, to make sure. So you just build in those sorts of buffers. Yeah. Um, now, both these, you know, having a devil's advocate is unpleasant. Building, adding more concrete is more expensive. But uh, what it does do is it does uh, insulate you against um, unknown incompetence. And you just know that it's going gonna, it's gonna to show up sooner or later. You just don't know where. So you might as well just have these policies that help you um, address uh, uh, the problems that you can't anticipate when they finally, uh, uh, finally rear up and uh, uh, try to bite you. That is fantastic. Um, and it's also, I love whenever people acknowledge our shortcomings and account for them, whether it's with checklists, even with surgeons oh, yeah. or, or things exactly. like that. Or in this case, like uh, taking something like Dunning-Kruger and saying, look, this is probably happening. It's all over the place. Let's, let's account for it. Um, and I, I was reading that some of your more recent research is in the realm of um, we're not, we're bad looking one direction, but we're also bad looking the other and that we are uh, both, mm. both bad at recognizing genius, genius or something like genius, if you want to use a different word. And, yes. um, and geniuses themselves are kind of bad at knowing that they're, the, that they are. Is that true? <laughs> well, no, that's, that's actually part of the original Dunning-Kruger um, framework was that uh, geniuses often don't know how special they are uh, because for them, uh, tasks come easy, uh, the right answer comes easy, and so they just assume if it's easy for me, it's easy for everybody. And, uh, that, and that's, a, that's very much a, a living phenomenon I see every day with very bright students or anybody who has more expertise in something than I have. Uh, they just assume I'm understanding everything they're saying and I have no clue what they're talking about. So if a plumber comes to our house, on occasion I will, I will carry a tape recorder <laughs> 
so that <laughs> I, yeah, they're, they're going to speak too fast. I'm not going to be able to follow, uh, but I'll be able to replay and then look up into Google what I think the words oh, are. That's great advice. That's that's some good life hacking right there. Good job. Well, yeah, but uh, you know, I have to. Uh, but you have to. I have to do it because I now recognize that person. Um, things that I understand, and uh, there's uh, other than crying, I, I don't seem to have anything in my arsenal to make a person <laughs> understand that I don't understand. Uh, that uh, that was part of the original package, part of the family of effects that fall out of uh, uh, incompetent people not knowing they're incompetent. But our current work, uh, what we're doing is asking, well, what happens at the collective level? That is, you act, ask about a group or a business or society. Sort of what extensions are are, are there of this uh, Dunning-Kruger framework? And the first thing that comes to mind is that uh, the collective, you know, is competent, but it's not perfectly competent, which means often it's not in a position to recognize true genius when it shows up. So um, one of my favorite examples of this uh, is the film Vertigo by Alfred Hitchcock. Uh, Which just um, just was voted the number one film of all time by Sight and Sound, the British uh, critics, uh, film critics society, and that that's sort of the most honored list, as far as I know. That's the most honored list. Um, you know, it uh, it was a bomb, or it made it, it's, it made it it made its money back, but it was passed over for best picture. It was nominated for best picture. Um, and, uh, it got really mixed reviews when it came out. So it literally took 50 years for the genius, um, uh, that was contained in Vertigo to be recognized. And, uh, the same is true for a lot of other things. Mm-hmm. Go back and look at the original reviews of the Gettysburg Address, for example. You'll find a lot of people who kind of go, wow, that was short and uninspiring. Mm-hmm. Um, Moby Dick, uh, I, I remember <laughs> reading how Moby, people thought Moby Dick was terrible, uh, unreadable there was also um a lot of walt whitman stuff people like god this guy's terrible why do people read this so yeah it comes up a lot it it, it does come up a lot and so what we did is uh, we uh currently engaged in a number of studies where uh we expose people to others who are performing very poorly to performing extremely well like in logical reasoning or in in the financial literacy that they're displaying uh, toward others, uh, or they're displaying. And what we find is that uh, the collective is pretty good at knowing who's bad. I mean, the collective is pretty good at judging who the poor performers are. But uh, top performers just really get underrated. Um, they, they just get missed. And so uh, our pithy way of saying it is that genius often just hides in plain sight because people just don't have the the intellectual scaffolding to be able to recognize it. And so that, uh, whether that genius is embodied in a person or in an idea, um, uh, uh, people or the collective often just doesn't have the genius itself to be able to recognize wow. uh, what it has. And, and, and so that, that, that's what we're working on right now in a number of different ways. That's awesome. And, and, it's, and of course, you know, here's the problem. You've just handed another uh, out for someone who's like, well, maybe I'm just a genius and uh, no one can recognize it. Well, no, I think that's exactly right. Or as one of my colleagues once said, you've explained the experience of every working class kid who's really <laughs> smart in their high school. But the problem is, is you, you're right. I mean, uh, th- this uh, explains the uh, true experiences of uh, re- some really smart people but it also explains uh, or purports to explain the experiences of people who think they're smart, but they're not really smart. And that's wow. a much larger number. It just, it just all around illustrates how, uh, oddly enough, we are not very 
good at assessing our own selves. I mean, uh, before we go, I, I wanted to get this question in before we go. And that is, sure. um, it seems like, okay, obviously we're very bad in every, in both directions when it comes to, uh, assessing ourselves, um, and, and accurately figuring out how skilled or not skilled, how knowledgeable, how not knowledgeable, it seems like that would be an important and an adaptive skill to possess. Mm. Um, it seems like it would be bad for us, evolutionarily speaking. Uh, is it just a glitch or a bug in the system? Or what is your take on on that perspective? Oh, well, my take is that um, I, I have a couple of different takes. The first is that evolution is designed to make us good enough to survive, but it's not going to make us all geniuses, uh, for example. Um, so we're, we're going to be competent enough to be able to ingest enough calories until we reach the age where potentially we can procreate. It'll make, get us to that level. But it, it won't make us all Einsteins, uh, for example, or Alfred Hitchcocks, or what, whatever genius that, that you want to think about. So it'll get us up to a, a certain level. But, I, uh, but the second uh, point is just noting how difficult this task is, that uh, if you sit down and say, why don't people know themselves? You begin to realize that there are just some in, there are some really big barriers uh, to knowing yourself, and uh, those barriers are so big um, that uh, evolution is, is not tough enough uh, to be able to defeat them. And and so that's uh, so that's what I think. One, however, let me leave with this note, which is that. Um, uh, when we're talking about it's it, difficult to know yourself, that's if you make it a private uh, task that only you are engaged in. You don't talk to other people. If you talk to other people, they can be sources of invaluable uh, insight into yourself. Uh, some of it may be unpleasant. Um, but uh, also just watching what other people do and benchmarking what you do versus what they do can be a source of insight. Uh, so that's something to, uh, to consider, that it takes a village, if you will, to, for a person to know themselves. Um, uh, oh, sure, there's one other thing I was going to mention here. Let me see if I can quickly... Uh, uh, oh, oh, yes, the other thing is that um, uh, uh, people sometimes ask me, okay, how do you figure out if you are gaining in knowing yourself? And one of the uh, hints I give, I don't know if it's true or not, but it, it sounds right, is uh, to ask people, are you vaguely embarrassed by things you did five or ten years ago? <laughs> and if you are, uh, that means good. You're evolving. You're improving. I mean, if you think about the self you were ten years ago and you're not embarrassed by, by something that you did, um, you might be off the task of, of right. really figuring out the type of person you are or the type of person you might be. So I'm, I'm always happy uh, in a second-order way when I read one of my old papers and kind of go, wow, uh, boy, did I do that wrong. Um, right. That's great advice. Like you should all – if you're a creative person or you're, you, you output uh, work like you do uh, – I would hope that you could always look back on the stuff that you've made and be like, yeah, because like, uh, especially if you're a writer, if you don't look back at this, at your old stuff, if you look back at your old stuff and say, wow, I used to be really great. I mean, then there's a, you were definitely moving in the wrong direction. No, and I think that's absolutely right. So, but, but by the way, sometimes it happens in reverse, which is you'll look at an old piece and kind of go, oh, now I get it. Now I get why, why people were paying attention to that. Um, I didn't get it then, but now I get it. Now I see. 
Um, uh, you know, to the extent that you can sort of look at your past self and see a different person, it suggests that you yourself now are a different person, and hopefully one that that's more uh, insightful. And I think here's something that I think people would like to know. This would this would be my la- my last question. I'll say my best for last, and that is, sure. Um, how does David Dunning live his life differently, knowing what he knows about the Dunning Kruger effect? Uh, I'm much more likely just to accept what I'm wrong. <laughs> uh, uh, that is, if uh, I think A is going to happen and then the opposite of A happens, I sort of look at that and say, okay, I'm, I'm shifting course. I was wrong. I, uh, I don't uh, rebel against experience and I, I don't rebel against data uh, the way I might uh, when I was younger. Um, I'm a little bit more laid back about making mistakes. Now, mind you, beforehand, I don't want to make mistakes. It's terrible to make mistakes sometimes. And then some doozies have been made. Um, but um, uh, afterward, I, I don't beat myself up as much. Uh, I just accept uh, that a mistake has been made and try to learn and try to figure out what I should learn from it. Okay. So look, um, people are going to want to find you. They're, they want, they'll want to keep up with you and see what you're doing in the future. How can they do that? Uh, a couple different things. Um, my... Um, uh, if you Google uh, uh, David Dunning and the term SASI, S-A-S-I, that'll get you to my lab's website so you can see whatever is going on there. Um, and um, uh, I also have a, uh, a list there if there's something like this where I've, I've made a contact with the media. There's been some interview or some article or something like that. Uh, I list it there, and, and often people can sort of, uh, from the website, work their way into material that they might find interesting. So that's the place uh, where I'd start. Right. Well, look, thank you so much. I love your work. Uh, you've been you know, very important to all the things that I've been into in the last few years, and I just really appreciate what you do, and I thank you so much for coming on. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. That is it for this episode of the You Are Not So Smart podcast. For links to everything that we talked about, head to youarenotsosmart.com. And for all the past episodes, go to Omni, Stitcher, SoundCloud, iTunes, or youarenotsosmart.com, where you can also find the show notes for this episode. Follow me on Twitter at David McCraney. Follow the show at NotSmartBlog. We're also on Facebook slash You Are Not So Smart. And if you'd like to support this one-person operation, go to patreon.com slash you are not so smart. It is a one-person operation, so pitching in really helps. Pitching in at any amount gets you the show ad-free, but at the higher amounts, you get posters, t-shirts, signed books, and other stuff like that. The opening music is Clash by Caravan Palace. And please, hey, tell everyone you know about the show and check back in two weeks for a fresh new episode. And this music is by Banjo Apocalypse. Insurance. We know it's more than just a car. It's the two-door coupe that was there for your first drive. 
the hatchback that took you cross-country and back, and the minivan that tackles the weekly carpool. For the cars you couldn't live without, trust Amica Auto Insurance. Amica. Empathy is our best policy.